Okay, guys, welcome back to another edition of the Human Performance Outlier Podcast. I'm here with uh, world record-holding runner Zach Bitter and myself, Dr. Sean Baker. We're going to talk today a little bit about uh, performance, diet, and some health stuff. So what do we got on the schedule for today, Zach? Yeah, yeah, episode four. We're, we're following through these things. It'll be uh, cool to get a few more up. But, uh, yeah, after the first three episodes, we had uh, a few questions coming in through email or on the, the YouTube comment section. So, you know, if you're waiting to ask a question, don't hesitate. We'll definitely put you in the hopper for future episodes like this. But, you know, today I think we're going to pick a couple of those and kind of go through them in a little more detail. Um, a lot of them are kind of related to some of the stuff we talk about in the, the Meet Zach Bitter and Meet Sean Baker podcast, where we kind of highlighted like what we're up to from a physical and nutritional standpoint. Um, you know, one question that kind of came in a few times that I thought would be kind of cool to, to talk about in a little more detail is like this, the, like the idea of like how nutrition plays a role in things like, like an anaerobic versus an aerobic type of a workout. So um, I think it's a cool question, partly because uh, you know Dr. Baker's workouts are pretty much all anaerobic, and mine are almost all aerobic. <laughs> I, I touch some anaerobic stuff from time to time, but not that often. So um, it's kind of a a neat way to look at it because I think um, one thing that people always seem to keep kind of coming back to is when you're in that explosive like really intense type of training uh, protocol, you need the carbs because you're just, you know, you're burning, you're burning hot and you're burning for a short period of time. So you need that kind of high octane fuel. Um, and obviously Sean being carnivore isn't introducing a whole lot of exogenous carbohydrates. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, exactly. You know, if you look at the different types of energy demands for different sports, I mean, there's obviously what you do, which is a real long distance stuff, the, you know, basically the aerobic type stuff. There is real short duration stuff, which doesn't really touch any of the, any of the glycolytic type machinery. You know, that's the stuff that, that lasts a few seconds. A lot of the, a lot of the traditional weightlifting, you know, the real short explosive movements, whether it's throwing something or doing a quick lift like Olympic lift or even some of the uh, powerlifting stuff that's generally, you know, you're, you're tapping into the, the uh, creatine phosphate system and you're not uh, touching much to do with, with glucose at that point. But when you get beyond about 20, 15, and 15 seconds, 12 to 15 seconds, you start to have to uh, utilize uh, uh, more glucose, uh, often in the terms, in the form of glycogen, uh, for at least for high intensity efforts and that's a lot of work that, that's the zone i really train in i really spend a lot of time in that uh 20 to two minute zone of real high intense effort and that's traditionally thought to be highly uh glucose or glycogen dependent and i do that you know pretty well uh arguably very well without any exogenous carbohydrate and so i think we have to realize that uh you know there's been a lot of research done in this area with athletes again uh, the thought being that Athletes will do better when they have more carbohydrates, and that's generally been the, been the case in the athletes they've tested. But we have to look at who they've tested, and generally the folks they've tested have been people that have, you know, sort of uh, chronically eaten a high-carbohydrate diet. And it, does, it makes sense that whatever you chronically eat, you're going to be most efficient at utilizing. And so, again, we don't have a lot of good research on this because this, this hasn't been studied. Uh, you know, me just being an anecdote, and there are other several several others like me that, that are accelerating, excelling. You know, in the in the more strength realm, with just a uh, diet free of exogenous carbohydrates, is kind of interesting. I think 
some of the adaptations that, that I've seen personally is, you know, I have a, uh, a little bit higher glucose, uh, you know, gluconeogenesis. My uh, muscles tend to prefer fat as a fuel, and so they don't take up the glucose until I actually am utilizing them in a high intensity. So when I, when I, when I undergo high intense bouts of exercise, my muscles will suck in that glucose and utilize that pretty rapidly. So I think that's what a lot. That's what's. I think that's the physiologic adaptation. Adaptation has occurred chronically for me that allows me to, to be so successful at these highly glycolytic activities. And I think we're seeing that. I've talked to a number of other uh, low carb people that have trained some athletes, and they're seeing that their their glucose goes up a little bit higher. And it's been interesting. There's a study that came out. Uh, I think it was in 2016 where they, they looked at some athletes. They called them sub elite athletes. They're mostly guys in your category. A lot of runners that they, they strapped uh, continuous glucose monitors to, and they saw the ones that had the least carbohydrate in the diet had the higher blood glucose, which is kind of interesting. You know, and I think your body, I think your body is, is sort of doing with the physiology what it needs to do uh, to sort of adapt to that performance. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting to me, you know, because I always kind of wondered about, about that question myself, and I think it was when I first started kind of following you on Twitter, I, I asked you once, like, know how much or how much time do you spend per day working out and and I believe and perhaps this has changed but uh I think you said it was usually about an hour a day and obviously yeah. like you know an hour a day of intensity work you know is gonna your body's gonna respond differently than say if you spend two to three hours a day of like really low intensity work which is a little more along the lines of what I'm doing. Um, and my first thought was actually that just from my own like kind of playing around with the whole high fat ketogenic protocol and how I um, like kind of strategically use carbohydrates from time to time, you know, my thought was always that it's more about the amount of time you have between workouts than it is about like the actual intensity of the workout itself. Um, because like, I think for you, like if you work out really hard, like a bunch of anaerobic, like wind sprints, like rowing machine, heavy weightlifting type stuff for an hour, you've got 23 hours for your body to kind of, you know, break down proteins and even some fats to some degree to like actually you know restore your glycogen stores enough so that when you go back and do those high those big bursts again it's like you're not you're not depleting your glycogen stores like those an hour of intensity is going to completely deplete your glycogen stores so like you know you can you can get away with less carbohydrates and give yourself more time between those really really intense stuff you know it's where it's, it's the same thing with my training, like when I'm in like kind of like the 10 hour a week volume stage, even if I've got some fast intervals in there, I can go much lower carb than when I'm you know, training upwards of 20 hours a week when I'm kind of in peak training. And, and you know, the way I kind of see that is it's because I'm kind of coming back to workouts more frequently. And I think we're starting to see some of that within like the kind of like MMA community too, or these, uh, like, you know, these, where these athletes where they're not just doing one workout a day, they're doing two, sometimes three. So that window between workouts is very condensed, and that's where I think a little bit of carbohydrate speeds up that that like glycogen um, uptake by your muscles. So sometimes I think it comes; it's more a question about the recovery timeline than it is the actual workout itself. Um, so it's, it's fascinating stuff, and like you know, like you said, I think you definitely need to do a deeper dive into like some of this stuff and take a look and see what's going on. It's just fascinating and. Um, you know, one of the other questions I often get or comments I often get that kind of relates to this um, that we can kind of talk about too is like this idea that, um, well, if, if 
if high carbohydrate isn't the way to go, then why are like most Olympians and gold medalists are following a high carbohydrate diet? Why aren't we seeing you know all those folks coming in with you know at least some kind of uh, high fat periodized like regimen in their nutrition? And you know I think it's it's along the lines of what you were just saying before, where like you know we just don't we don't have a huge sample size. It's it's not like these people that are training for for the Olympic Games they're probably not as inclined to try to like experiment with themselves either because you know they've got a window of time that they see that they have the chance to, to do so they're kind of just doing what they're told by nutritionists and stuff like that so I think what I think we're doing a lot of times is we're looking at the end result of what happens when we put a bunch of people on a high carbohydrate diet my thought is like the people that end up breaking those world records and you know becoming an Olympic medalist are oftentimes like um, you know, they're all kind of being funneled into this higher carbohydrate approach. So then of these like super talented, genetically gifted individuals who are just like, you know, kind of born to compete at a given sport, so to speak, and then put a ton of work in to kind of fine tune that skill, you know, they're all given this high carbohydrate approach. So what we see with the gold medalists and the Olympians and stuff is the people who, for whatever reason, were able to kind of survive that, that gauntlet or decide you know, survive that kind of, that meat grinder, so to speak, of a high carbohydrate performance space. And then we have all these other folks that are equally as talented or capable that maybe don't, but we don't hear about them because they fall along the wayside, whether it's, you know, after high school, after college, in the semi-pro type scenario, they just never make it to that top peak um, because they're trying to jam a high carbohydrate approach into something that, into a training program for them that isn't ideal. And I would love to see, like, some of those folks play around with some different nutritional approaches and see if that could be the ticket to kind of keeping them in the sport and, and, and that type of stuff. So um, it's kind of an interesting thought or way to look at it differently, I guess. Yeah, I think, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of that. I think we're seeing some people that are experimenting with uh, the, uh, you know, certainly with periodized type training with, you know, a higher fat approach. You know, I think one of the interesting things about, you know, the diet I'm doing with the carnivorous approach is it's a little, a little bit more higher protein. And I don't know what your thoughts on protein are. I mean, I know that uh, there's been some studies showing that actually endurance athletes might even require higher protein than, than some of the other athletic cohorts. So what are, what are your thoughts on Coming from a ketogenic background, are you are you seeing a change with protein ingestion now? Are you finding that that's something you've played with for recently? Yeah, you know that's a, that's another interesting topic, and it was actually uh, um, an interesting one in my opinion too. Because I was actually just listening to a podcast with uh, your buddy Mark Bell, who I know you've done some work with recently, and he was kind of talking about that too, where he first kind of went on the. Um, a ketogenic approach, he was really, really cognizant of keeping the protein relatively low or moderate, kind of at like 80 to 150 milligram or gram kind of a framework to try to avoid, you know, that that uh, idea that, you know, the protein can kick you out of ketosis. Um, but I think that even is very individual. I think, uh, you know, sometimes people are more or less in a metabolic position where even the protein can kind of throw them out of ketosis and cause problems, and they have to be like really strict. And, and, and that's kind of the field that we have most research on because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's probably more important to be focusing on nutritional strategies for people with like type 2 diabetes and stuff as opposed to, you know, how can we fine tune these, these athletes. So, like, I think that's where a lot of the, a lot of some of those guidelines are, are 
coming up from? They're coming up from the medical community as opposed to the performance community. Um, and I think what, what, what Mark ended up saying was that like, it, he didn't start feeling really good until he started playing around with uh, um, higher protein intakes just by the nature of more, more carnivore-based diet because even a fatty cut of steak is going to have a relatively high amount of protein compared to the ratios you might look at in a strict ketogenic approach. So, like, and, and he said he felt like that that made a pretty big difference for him. And from my own personal experience, too, I've played around with it where, you know, I've tried to keep my protein at, like, you know, a more moderate level and, you know, tested my level of ketosis. And then I tested my, like, ketones and stuff and how I feel when I do play around with just a full carnivore approach where my protein intake can get up to close to 200 grams sometimes. And, you know, I'm 140 pounds, so 200 grams is definitely more than what you would normally see that I would need. Like, no one would be saying I'm deficient in protein at that level. And I don't notice any of those, like, those, those scenarios where I'm getting bumped out of ketosis. If I'm eating all meats, you know, as long as it's fattier cuts of meat, like, that's actually what I found the quickest way for me to kind of get back into ketosis when I'm in recovery and things like that. So, um, it's, I think it's, it can be pretty individualistic as to where you're at. And then, you know, it also comes back to this, this whole idea that I've always been kind of perplexed by. It's like, what, what is your reason for trying to get into ketosis? Like, is your goal to be in ketosis? Is your goal just to be healthier and be as fat adapted as you need to be? Um, and for me personally, it's like, I want to feel good when I'm doing, um, you know, my day to day stuff and my workouts and things like that and racing. Um, and if that means I'm in ketosis half the time, two thirds of the time, whatever, it's like I don't really care too much at that point. I'm more interested in seeing what happens in the field. Like, you know, can I go out for a four hour long run with just water and electrolytes? And if the answer is yes, I'm bad adapted enough to be ready for a race. Um, and so I, I, I tend to kind of like those like self experimentations better for that reason because it's, it's like the only way to test yourself as opposed to like, you know, what the research is saying for like a cohort of people that potentially aren't you or probably aren't you unless you happen to be part of the study. So um, that's kind of my thought on that. Yeah, one of the things that I always sort of, you know, somebody told me when I was throwing, one of the coaches told me, he said, the goal is a goal, you know, and, and, and that's that's a simple thing, but, you know, a lot of times you get tied up in these, these sidetracks to like, when my goal was to throw something really far, that's the only thing I wanted to focus on and make sure that was good, but I always just think, well, maybe I can throw forth farther if I had a stronger push press or I could snatch more or something like that, so I would get hung up on, on doing all these auxiliary exercises and, and, and getting away from what I'm really trying to focus on. I think if we get a, a little with that with this, this sort of how much ketosis am I in versus what is my actual goal? Is my goal to be as healthy as I can or to perform as good as I can? If so I would question, you know, they ask, the question I would ask you is, why are you aware of any studies that, that directly correlate levels of ketones and performance? And then how do, how do you how do you sort of sort of rectify that? Do you, do you find that I perform better when my ketones are higher or is there no real pattern that you've noticed? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say there's a, a huge pattern that I've noticed. I do notice that when like I'm you know following a really strict low-carb approach, I feel like I can run all day long um, at a relatively easy pace uh, and that I don't necessarily have that, that big punch at the very end. Um, if I want to kind of like change gears. Um, but that's also typically been in the presence of a pretty high training load. 
So I'm not sure that that necessarily would correlate with someone who's just like, um, you know, not training for, you know, 12, 15 hours before that one day where you're going out for a long time. Like, um, so I think there's, there's a little bit of kind of room to play around with your own approach and your own lifestyle. Like there's a lot of things going on that can, can affect that. And, um, I just haven't noticed that like, there's this big advantage to being in ketosis 24/7, 365 for like a performance standpoint. Um, just like I haven't seen in my scenario an advantage to being high carbohydrate, uh, you know, 24/7. It's like there's there's middle ground there in my opinion, and I think the the endurance world is a little goofy because I think what we're doing in you know, especially like extreme endurance is, is a fairly unnatural like activity. So like I try not to get too hung up on like what is like, you know, what is the most ideal like evolutionary approach to this because I don't think that humans are necessarily designed to, you know, train a 20 hour training week and then run a hundred miles as fast as you can. Like Surely they'd be traveling long distances, but at a very modest pace, I would say. So, like, um, it's I think it's one of those things where, like, if you're trying to live a lifestyle that's not necessary, where you're fighting an uphill battle to stay healthy, I guess, as opposed to, like, a lifestyle where um, your number one goal is just to be as healthy as possible, I want to live as long as possible, you know, then I wouldn't recommend running 100-mile races. Um, you're certainly not on a regular basis, so it, it, it's kind of one of those balances in my mind that I weigh. It's like you know, quality of life versus like the length of life and stuff like that. I love running um, ultra marathons, so like you know, if that means that I'm gonna kind of fight a little bit of an uphill battle um, in terms of just my overall health goals, then I'm willing to kind of do that. Uh, but you know, I'm not doing that blindly, thinking like, oh, this hundred mile race is gonna make me healthier. Um, what I am thinking is, well, how do I, how do I mitigate the damage that I'm creating by doing something that's very unnatural for the human body to kind of experience? And for me, that's been, you know, doing, uh, you know, a high fat approach where no matter what point of the year I'm in, fat is my primary macronutrients. And then at various phases, dropping it really low, like especially during recovery phases where, you know, I've been going really low carbohydrate, ketogenic style, 30 to 50 gram type of stuff. Um, and in some cases, I guess, quote, quote, zero carb, where I've been playing around with some carnivore cycles within that too. And you know, that's just what I found keeps me kind of coming back and not like burning out, so to speak. I mean, you know, I've been doing ultra marathons for almost eight years now. So it's like, it's, you see guys and gals coming out of sport, you know, sometimes they come in, they leave for a long time and they come back. And sometimes they never come back. And it's, so you see a lot of that kind of turnover, um, and you know, for me, I want to kind of be around as long as I can. So I, I tend to look at some of these guys like you know, Jeff Browning, who's 45 or 46 years old and still doing well at 100 mile races. And um, another guy is uh, Mike Morton. He was he hasn't been running all just the last couple of years, but he ran Western States in 2013 and got third place. At age 42, on um, you know one of the faster years on record, where you know Tim Olson, another guy who followed a relatively high fat approach, um, and then Rob Carr in second, you know two of the kind of legends of that race. So he was right behind them at age 42, and he followed uh, a very high fat approach. Um, so I'm looking at some of these guys like, well, 
what what's different about these forty something year olds where they're able to still hang with the you know, upper twenty, lower thirty guys? You know, what are they doing differently? And um, it's, it's it's just an interesting kind of of a like experiment or research project, I guess, with with that stuff. Yeah, I think, and I agree 100%. I think some of the, you know, when you get to the extremes of athleticism, whether it's in, from the endurance side or the strength side or, you know, a lot of the bodybuilders that they go in, and, and what they're doing is trying to pack on a bunch of muscle and walk around at 6% body fat. That's not a human, normal human condition. And I think the, thing, the things you have to do to get there in a lot of cases are not sort of normal for health in a lot of cases and, and I do agree that one of the things I find with, with different diet schemes you know particularly coming from a high carbohydrate to a lower carbohydrate diet is I think you get less beat up and I think your recovery is better and I think that is something that may protect you from a health standpoint and longevity I know with somebody because I've been doing this training hard you know lifting hard nearly 40 years now and I and I noticed when I got into my mid 40s I was getting pretty beat up and not feeling well not recovering and that was sort of impeding my progress and then overall it was making me you know I think just less and less healthy as time got on and then when I switched gears and went to uh, you know a lower carb paleo keto and then finally carnivorous diet I continued to see you know, general improvements in my recovery capacity and my ability to train at those high levels without getting beat up and feeling bad. And I think that's something that, you know, there's a lot of thought that high-level athletics does not equal health. And I think a lot of times we have to put that in the context of how much damage we're doing. And does a high-carbohydrate diet lead to more oxidative stress and, and damage potentially? I think that's a valid question. I don't know the answer for that for sure. But it seems to be, at least from a recovery capacity, that, you know, limiting the carbohydrates is helpful. Yeah, you know, it's. It, I think there's definitely some contradicting the studies of like, the whole oxidative stress thing, and um, I know that I've seen a few where it does point to like, especially when you step away from like what's happening from a medical standpoint with oxidative stress in the diet and towards like a performance base, where when you're asking your body to burn a fuel source to like achieve a physical endeavor, like um, you know you. You, you kind of, you, you yeah, there's a payback for burning a fast fuel source like a carbohydrate, and it's just, you know, more oxidative stress, more stressful on your body. And, you know, it stands to reason. And, you know, stress, I think, is oftentimes a misunderstood word as well. It's like, you know, the idea of training to peak is to stress yourself just enough to elicit a response to get stronger, and then kind of keep pinging that very slightly so that you're gradually getting stronger as opposed to taking on this, you know, massive load of stress where you just, your body kind of fails on you. Um, so like, it's one of those things like, where's the line and like, you know, you don't want to get too close to it or cross over it, but, um, you know, you also want to give yourself what you need to kind of get yourself in the position to, to compete at whatever you're trying to train for performance is your, your goal. And then, you know, if health is your goal, it's like, you know, then you're, you're, you're kind of dealing with a different set of ideals there. I think like, you know, that was one of the other questions we kind of got was, you know, what about, you know, someone whose number one goal is just to get healthy. Um, and you know, my thought with that is always, you know, start slow with the workouts and work with your body as opposed to get it. And then, you know, in a lot of cases with someone like that, you know, they may be in a position where they're, they're not at a, at a metabolic high point in their life. So they might have to make some drastic changes in the early stages trying to get themselves back on track. And then, you know, that's where I think the carnivore diet is such a cool concept because you essentially eliminate everything your body doesn't need to survive and only gives it what it absolutely needs 
um, and let everything kind of return to homeostasis. And then if you decide, you know, I don't want to eat steaks every meal for the rest of my life, then you can start playing around and finding out what's working once you kind of have that baseline of back to normalness. And then, you know, some people probably find out they can get away with a few more things than others. And uh, I know you mentioned it before, like Rob Wolf and his wife did some pretty cool N equals one experiments where they show like how different things affect different people quite drastically. So um, I definitely think like it's it's smart to keep an open mind and, and try some of these things and find out for yourself. Like, you know, I feel good this way. You know, I'm sleeping better. There's a, there's a lot of good like individual like markers that show good health. Like, if you're sleeping good at night, that's an excellent indicator of you know, like that stress levels are balanced, that your body's in a good circadian rhythm, things like that. If you're not, you know, craving craving food all the time, it's like that's your body telling you something's off if you're craving food all the time. So it's missing something. So, you know, there's a lot of things you can gather just from being intuitive. And, and it can be frustrating because I think it's a long, it can be a long trip getting to um, that ability to be able to kind of be intuitive and trust what your body's saying. But sometimes stripping it down to the most simple concept is the easiest way to go because then you're at least you're not stressing and worrying about that. It's like I know you've said this before. It's like, well, it's an easy decision for me. I just you know I, when I'm hungry I eat steak and when I'm not hungry I stop and then you know that's the end of it. And as long as you're feeling good like that, it's like it's hard to argue. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think when we talk about getting healthy, I mean it's 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 some people have a I think we all have a hard time defining what is health, you know. And I think there's some some there are some general things that most people would agree with. I think you know if we can bring down our you know our, if we're obese, bring down our level of body fat. Most people will agree that's healthy. You know I think exercise you know capacity certainly indicates health. You know lack of pain, ability to sleep, good digestion, good mood. I think all those things you know good skin condition. I think all those things go into how we define health. And then and then around that, you know people like to say well what kind of lab values do we want to look at. And I think that's where we get a little bit. Um, Hyper focus on some of this stuff, and we don't really uh, necessarily understand what those what all those things mean. I will I'll point out, like you know, for me, I know people have because I people constantly say, yeah, I was a big sort of. I don't think the labs are that important, and I still I still maintain I don't think they're that important. I think they can be helpful in acute situations. I think they can be helpful in certain situations, but for the most part, when you're looking at let's say your cholesterol. You know, your cholesterol can be all kinds of things, and you can still to be very healthy. And I think it's one of the one of the things people talk about with uh, low carb diets. And a lot of people see their cholesterol go up. Well, at the same time, we see their levels of inflammation go go down. We see all these other positive aspects of health, and then we look at some other ratios. They're all healthy, and we have this one outlier that's out there saying, "Well, you've got high cholesterol." Well, that may be perfectly appropriate in that situation. I think there's people doing some pretty interesting work on this. Dave Feldman, you know, Ivor Cummings are showing that isolated LDL cholesterol, the quote-unquote bad cholesterol. There's no there's no real such thing as bad or good cholesterol. The cholesterol that's in your HDL is the exact same cholesterol that's in your LDL. It's just how it's being packaged and shipped around the body. And so cholesterol is a necessary component, and whether it's high or low, it can be good or bad. It does it, it Really depends on what else is going on independently. And I'll say the same thing with you know things like you know my blood glucose being a little higher than other people's. Now I think we've got a lot of people say, well, well you're pre-diabetic, and I'm I'm like, well that's that may be true, but here's also the other things that are going on. You know I'm extremely insulin sensitive. I've got extremely low levels of insulin, which make me extremely insulin sensitive. I don't have excess body fat. I keep lean. You know if I was a type one diabetic. 
I would be wasting away because I'm not giving myself any insulin. Right? I know a type 1 diabetic without insulin will waste away their muscles, will burn burned off, their fat will be burned off, they become emaciated. Obviously, that, that's not happening. If I were a type 2 a diabetic, then I would be profoundly insulin resistant. Again, that's not happening because my insulin levels are low. So we're in this in-between stage, and I think there's some interesting sort of stuff that shows that blood glucose is not the only determinant of problems. And I think there are... Uh, studies out there that look at when they lower blood glucose with drugs, like the Accord study, it showed no improvement in outcomes with complications. There's a group of people that have a glucokinase deficiency where they don't, they have a little bit higher blood glucose, but we also see that they have less complications than people with normal blood glucose in, in, in certain cases, which is kind of interesting. And then there's also carnivorous animals like cats, dolphins, and others where you look at, they run a little higher blood glucose because they have the same diet as I do, basically. And again, they, they have no complications. So it's, it's this kind of interesting stuff. We have these single variables that we want to we want to impart so much significance to them without understanding the whole system and the whole package. And I think, again, this goes back to the overall question of what is healthy and I don't think we we have a good handle on that and I think people are out there looking at one little thing saying that's how I know I'm healthy I would say it's a whole package of things and I think what's what we talked about you know how what's my performance like you know I know Rob Wolf likes this is how do you look feel and perform and I think those things are very relevant and I think we need to sort of re-embrace that and re-understand that and really focus on that stuff because that's ultimately what I what you and I and anybody else really cares about how do I look how do I feel how do I perform Anything beyond that is we don't know. It's just like okay, I can I can obsess about these numbers, what my ketone level is, you know, you know what what my heart rate variability is, and all this stuff that you know, it, 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 you know, people obsess about this stuff. And a lot of times I ask, are you truly any better for that? And, and often the, the answer is no. Yeah, you know, it's always interesting because like you know, I know it's been said before, but you know, blood is a snapshot. So like you get one blood test, you know what's going on in that moment. You don't know what's necessarily going on all the time. So you have to kind of put that in context. And you know, the thing that would be more intriguing to me would be blood tests like three to four times a day for like a month or something like that, or even like spread over the year during different training cycles and stuff like that. And see like a to look for trends because like then you can you can start to connect dots on your on your own and say like oh this is where these levels are at for me when i feel really good or these are what i can expect during a recovery phase and kind of map out your own you know your own kind of uh values i guess or what you're looking to target to some degree um which is i think pretty high barrier to entry for most people to be getting blood tests on that regular basis but it's you know it's something that i guess they curious geeks can do and hopefully show us a, a blueprint of some sort with that type of thing maybe down the road. But. Well, I mean, again, you got to look at your your, your endpoint performance. I know you had a muscle biopsy when when you participated in the faster study, and I, and I think that's probably a better measure of a lot of things. But again, you can you can talk about how convenient, and how comfortable that is, and no one's going to sign up for that, you know, once once a week or something like that because it's pretty painful, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was feeling it for a couple of days after that. Right? It just kind of felt like there was a uh, like a sharp like extra pain in, in the muscle flexion for for a bit after that. So yeah, that would be something I'd want to limit. But um, <laughs> uh, it'd be an interesting sign. But yeah, you can definitely gather more long term. I think uh, data as to what's going on in your body than with other things other than blood. But um, and then, you know, I don't know that we need to get into this today at all, but, like, it's also the idea of, like, you've got these ratios of what's ideal, and, you know, those are very much established ranges within more or less a standard American diet. So, 
you know, I know uh, uh, Dr. PDT has talked about this in the past when he first kind of started, you know, talking about a high fat approach and his blood values. And he's like, well, you know, we don't know what is ideal for someone who's eating like next to no carbohydrates. Like they may look a lot different. Like they may need less of something, which is why their body's levels are lower in that because they just don't need as much of that because they don't need like this new, this micronutrient to kind of counteract the metabolization that is caused by burning carbohydrates. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions still with that. So you definitely have to take, you know, blood tests, I think with a grain of salt to some degree, and, uh, listen to some of those markers your body's telling you, uh, like you mentioned, like sleep and all that stuff. So, um, I've got one more question, uh, that I think is an interesting one for the strength, uh, community, especially like people trying to get really strong and trying to do it as quick as they can is, you know, I see this sometimes, uh, like in the bodybuilding community and stuff is like, well, I need carbohydrates to get weight. I need that. Like they're kind of on the opposite of the spectrum. Most people are like, I'm cutting out carbohydrates because I want to lose weight, uh, or I, I don't want to gain weight. I want to, you know, lose, lose body fat. But then you got this other population of guys and gals who are trying to put on weight to get stronger. Um, and then a lot of times their question is, can I, can I put on muscle? Can I gain weight? on a carnivore diet or even a high fat low carb diet. And I think this is an interesting and a very timely question for this podcast episode. So I think you're kind of in this process right now. Yeah, I mean I, I you know because I like I said I've been focused on this rowing for the last couple of years and I thought just for fun I'm going to focus on strength for a little while. I haven't done that in about 20 years, and so I'm trying to trying to get myself up to uh, back up to around a 700 pound deadlift, which will you know be one of the top deadlifts in the in the world for over 50. And so, um, yeah, so I just increased the volume of food and I put on weight. I mean, it's you know it's been it's been pretty straightforward, and I, it's all been more more steak. And I, I went from 242 to about 252 in about uh, six weeks of eating more food. And I mean, you know, I put on probably a little bit more body fat, but I mean, it's 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 there's muscle too. I've gotten stronger and so I you know I, I think it's just a matter of you know getting enough enough yeah, enough enough fuel you know I think that's that's uh, the easy argument for, for anybody you know the carbohydrates one of the uh, arguments has always been you know it spikes insulin more and uh, and that's certainly true but certainly you get an insulin spike from beef I think Stuart Phillips has got a decent review article that I read about carbohydrates and protein and it didn't seem like carbohydrates were really that essential uh, and so I would encourage people to look that article up Stuart Phillips you know recent pretty well-respected researcher uh, showed I think showed that or at least not to a high level that, that, that people think you need them and I think that there's some changing thought on on what that does or some thought that uh, it may uh, impede muscle breakdown more than build uh, help with muscle synthesis so I think there's uh, some uh, different thought on on that you know because there are there are definitely people that i've seen besides myself that are putting on muscle doing this and so can it be done sure it can you know is it the most efficient way to do it i'm not sure i i'd say maybe it's not but i mean the question is not you know if the question is is it possible then i'd say definitely it's possible you can put on muscle you can certainly get stronger and i've seen one of the things that uh has been most remarkable is the number of people saying they're just getting very strong and breaking PRs and they're lifting and some of them are, you know, they're getting, even despite getting leaner, they're just getting stronger. And so I think particularly with regard to strength weight ratios, it's, it, it seems to be helping people quite, quite significantly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just, it's one of those things too, where like, it's like, if you want to gain weight, you're going to be 
a little uncomfortable in terms of how full you are. Like you can't necessarily just eat to satiation and stop because if your body's fine tuned, then like if you eat to satiation and stop, you're going to maintain the weight. You're giving your body what it needs and then you're stopping when it doesn't need anymore. But so like, you know, upping, upping your intake is definitely the mode probably no matter what direction you're going when it comes to gaining weight. Uh, and it's just a matter of like getting it in. So for you, I think it was probably a lot, a little clearer maybe because you're like, well, I typically eat like four to five pounds of meat a day and I can so long to eat six, six, seven. And then, you know, if, if the four to five kept you at X weight, then it would stand a reason that adding more would probably add some. So, um, uh, again, the carbon diet simplifying things, I guess. <laughs> well, I, again, I think, and I think some of that, some of the problem we have with calories and calories as you know, a lot of people with metabolic problems, dysregulation, hormones are not ideally regulate. I think I think those things play a role in that. I think once you sort of settle those things down and your hormones sort of get in a in a more balanced position, then I think you can you can swing the needle up and down by by calories a lot a lot easier in some cases. Now you know again anybody can can drop calories out of their diet. You know we we see that on TV shows like The Biggest Loser where they drop all the diet, but it ends up kind of wrecking them metabolically. And so I think you you know. It just it, it, it makes so much sense. If I eat less, I'm going to lose weight. If I eat more, I'm going to gain weight. That that makes sense. But for some people, it doesn't work that way. And it's kind of I think metabolism has a role in that, and uh, the, the hormones. And I think once you do this carnivorous diet for a period of time, those things sort of normalize, and then I think those things start to uh, play more of a natural role, perhaps. I mean, it's still, again, this stuff is all theoretical at this point, and we'd like to see some studies on that. Uh, hopefully down the road we'll get some of that stuff done. Let me, let me change gears and ask you a quick question, because I get I get this sort of question a lot about electrolytes. How do you uh-huh. supplement electrolytes? How do you handle electrolytes around performance? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, because I think this is another thing, like this has probably become a common theme, but it can be very individual. Um, like there's, there's, they've done tests on people where they do like a sweat test to see how much like sodium they're losing for an hour at a given intensity and a given temperature range. And, you know, you get like ranges from 500 milligrams of sodium up to like 2000. So like, obviously if I'm losing 2000 milligrams an hour, I'm going to be supplementing a little differently with electrolytes than if I'm losing 500. Um, I do think that it becomes a bigger question for folks cutting the carbs down low because I know for me, uh, if I cut my carbs low, I immediately lose a couple pounds of water and it's like, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, it is if it's just an inflammation that's getting kind of flushed out, but, uh, um, if it's just what I would be normally using to balance out my hydration, I need to kind of keep that at a, at a certain level so that I have that on board. Um, blood volume that is required to kind of do all the functions you need to be able to run, especially in the heat. So, um, you know, electrolytes are something that I usually keep a pretty good eye on. It's one of those things where I think you can go a long way just to make sure you're salting your food on your regular meals. I think the body is also very efficient with electrolytes, and that's why you see those big ranges. You know, what I kind of suspect is that you get someone who's only losing 500 milligrams an hour, they probably don't need a whole lot of salt. Um, someone who's losing 2,000, you know, they're probably eating tons of it. So, like, their body, their body is pretty good at sparing it when it needs to and then flushing it out when it needs to as well. And, I mean, like anything, there's, if you go to the extreme on either end, it could potentially become an issue. It's still, like, too much of anything is a bad thing kind of an idea. 
um, which is a, a self, somewhat of an oversimplification, uh, in my opinion. But what I'll do a lot of times is I'm like no stranger to putting like Himalayan sea salt on all kinds of foods, and I eat a lot more savory foods than sweet foods, so it's very easy to do that. Um, and usually that's about enough. If I'm going out for a long run, especially in the heat, I'll use a, a product called Hydro-X by Exendurance, which is a kind of a clinically proven balance of electrolytes, and it's 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 like really low calorie, like. I think what one scoop is maybe seven calories. So if I'm trying to keep the carbs low, it's not going to move the needle on that. Um, so I don't have to worry about getting like you know a, a glucose spike along with the electrolyte with that product. Um, but you know there's a there's a whole host of different things that people do in the ultra running community. You know it's definitely a, a topic. You know most aid stations have like some sort of sort of electrolyte along with like you know they even like bowl of salt where people will dip potatoes in or something like that or like little little pills that are just like an electrolyte blend and then they'll take that in and stuff. But um, yeah, so I think it's 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 one of those things where if things are going smoothly, you don't really have to mess around with it too much because if you're not noticing negative outcomes like performance dips or lightheadedness or huge fluctuations in your weight from water retention and loss of fluid and stuff, then it's like you're probably just doing it right, so why mess with it? Um, but if you are noticing those things, I can start looking into that type of stuff. And um, I think balance is kind of key with that. Just you know, don't don't consciously avoid salt. And, you know, you, you'll probably be fine by by just doing that. And then when it does get hot or your workout does get long, you have some electrolyte stuff along with you along the way. And if you need it, great. If you don't, cool. Save it for later. Yeah, I think there's a difference between when you, once you reach homeostasis, particularly with diet. If you're if you're playing with your carbs up and down, you know, every few weeks, you may there's transition periods where you may like see those shifts in, in both fluid and electrolytes. And I know for people when they transition to some sort of low carb diet, they'll often find that they flush out electrolytes, and that's, that's a pretty normal consequence. And, and for me, I've found that you know once you once you've done it for a while, you kind of reach that homeostasis, and so you're no longer bleeding out electrolytes. You're kind of at a, at a sort of a level that your body likes. And then for me, I find that hard training for me I feel that that, that um, I get a little better performance booth with a little extra electrolyte added in there and I think one of the things we look at the role of because I'm training without carbohydrates and one of the things when we look at the role of carbohydrates is obviously it increases your insulin and that insulin will, will impact your renal handling of, of salts and so what happens is you know you have a net reabsorption of sodium if, if your insulin's higher which causes increased uh, fluid retention and that fluid can aid your muscle contraction and you have more fluid in your vessels that arguably you know more blood means more performance you know fuller muscles so on and so forth and I think you can skip that carbohydrate insulin thing just by taking in a little bit of extra, extra electrolyte in the beginning and you can kind of just skip that whole loop and I think that's where people are finding that uh, with a carnivorous diet or, or a low carb diet adding enough uh, electrolyte around the workouts Prior to the workouts, they get you know the, the sort of the filled up muscles that they they're used to seeing, particularly with guys that are doing bodybuilding and stuff like that. Yeah, and I think that's that's some I've, I've had that discussion with um, you know console calls and other people as well, where it's like when they first feel a dip in performance on kind of a high fat approach, you know, first we kind of look at that because you know if we can fix it with something as simple as just putting some salt on your food or you know taking an electrolyte supplement during the run and um, not have to try to play around bringing back some carbohydrate at the wrong time. You know, that's always a kind of a, a good way to start. So um, the, the interesting thing to me is it's like anything where, like, 
the goal, I think, with food and nutrition is to make it, to eventually get it to be intuitive so you're not sitting there counting numbers, you know, you know, being like overly stressed about, well, what is this going to do? What's that going to do? It's really nice when you can just start listening to your body. And, you know, for me, I can definitely tell, like, if I go for a long run on a hot day and I come back, you know, I might crave salt. So I put a lot of salt on my, my next meal. And, you know, that's usually a good a good way to kind of, like, when you can get to that where your body tells you what it needs when it needs it and you can trust it, you know, that's the money zone right there, in my opinion. And really the only way to get there is to kind of, you know, try these things and keep an open mind and, you know, see what works for you and, you know, be honest with yourself and that type of stuff and find your path. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that our bodies are kind of designed to tell us what we need sometimes. And if we just kind of figure out how to how to figure out how to interpret that, you know, and then we then we kind of function like any other animal in the wildwood. And, you know, the, the those animals running around your backyard typically don't have diabetes and heart disease and all those things that we seem to uh, suffer from uh, in uh, extremely high rates, which is which is kind of a. Uh, uh, sort of a testimony to uh, you know how much we've messed with our own sort of natural state. Yeah, for sure. You know, they say if it's not broke, don't fix it, and it's. I think there's some truth to that. But when you look at health, you know, in general, it's pretty broken across the spectrum. So like, you know, then then it's like, well, let's fix it. So I think it's cool to have a bunch of tools available for people to kind of try out and. Um, at least, you know, generate the awareness that, you know, health and nutrition shouldn't be an afterthought. It shouldn't be something that is, uh, they get sacrificed because you have a, you know, a job or an obligation. And it's just like, you know, don't make that compromise and take care of yourself because that's, then you got that one body to kind of work with. So you got to treat it right. Um, so I think keeping that open mind and getting yourself into a position where you can, you know, adhere to a healthy approach is, is always kind of a, the goal in mind. All right. Well, I think we, we've gone we're almost an hour in there, Zach, so we'll try yeah. to wrap this one up. Um, you know, hopefully you guys that are watching send, send some more questions in. We'll talk about that stuff, have some guests on coming up that hopefully you'll, you guys will be excited to have. Um, what, uh, what do you have coming up this week? Anything exciting? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I'm doing, you know, I've been doing these uh, – Kind of shorter ultra marathons as as training runs the last month or so to build up for a race in in the kind of late spring early summer so i've got one of those my longest one so far this season uh it's a an 88k so about 55 miles um called the whiskey basin uh 88 kilometer uh out near kind of prescott arizona near sedona so it's a pretty beautiful trail area and we'll get out there for a good Good long run, and then uh, um, keep on the training, keep the training going. So, you know, I've been doing a couple 50Ks here and there. Uh, the last few weeks, I did uh, a one called the Mesquite, Mesquite Canyon 50 kilometer, and then the weekend after that, did uh, Crown King 50 kilometer scramble or 50 kilometer. Um, so, that was kind of a fun experiment to do back to back weekend 50 kilometers and just kind of see how. how how well I could train through it and recover, and um, you know, it was went well. I couldn't complain, so bounced back quick, trained through both of them pretty much, and um, uh, right, right on target for something in the late spring, early summer, I think. So, yeah, and congrats, you won both of those races, too. So, Zach's being modest there, but good for you. <laughs> yeah, I did manage to double dip a little bit. I got the, the training run in, and I was able to take home the first on both of those, so that was. 
that's always an added benefit, I think. It's um, it's interesting, you know, I'm in the sport of ultra running, it's like, it's, some people like to use races as training, because if you're running, running a 100 mile race, it's like, you gotta put in some long runs. So to me, it's like I've been doing this long enough where it's a lot, it's a lot less exciting to go out on a 30 mile run by myself. And there's a lot more exciting to go up to an event and just, you know, find out, check out a new course, check out some new trails, meet some new people and kind of make a kind of a day out of it as opposed to just kind of slogging along on my own. Um, and uh, you gotta be careful not to, you know, push too hard in those type of scenarios because you, you want to recover quick enough to get back into training. But, um, no, it's, uh, it's a it's a fun way to kind of do it. So it's uh, kind of a path I've gone the last few years with, I guess, B races or C races. Perfect. So how do let's let people know how they get a hold of us and how they can kind of pass this information that they wanted us to talk about. Uh, how do they do that? Cool. Yeah, we've got an email address actually, hpopodcast at gmail .com. So you can definitely send us questions, comments, anything you maybe want. If you got a guest that you know or you would love to hear us interview, send us that way and, or send them our way. Um, I know Sean and I both have some ideas with future guests that we're hoping to get on sooner rather than later. Um, you can find both of us on uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I'm on Twitter at ZBitter, Instagram at ZachBitter. Uh, and I'll put all that stuff in the show notes in the comment section as well. And then, and then Sean, if you want to get any handles or contact spots for you. Yeah, sure. So uh, Instagram, Sean Baker in 1967. It's S-H-A-W-N. I don't spell it the Irish way. So, And then, and then Twitter, SBakerMD. And then uh, I'd like you guys to check out MeatHeels.com. I think that's a pretty interesting website where we're showing all these carnivore success stories. Uh, CarnivoreTrainingSystem.com, some training stuff. And then I've got a website online soon called Sean-Baker.com where We'll put some of the science stuff that we're we're talking about. That we talk about uh, some of the uh, uh, just some just some neat information about carnivory and training and science in general, healthcare in general. And I'm going to probably open up a little bit of uh, some individual consulting here in the near future too. So for, I know there's been a lot of people that try to keep asking me to do that, and so I'm going to do that in a little at least at least in a limited capacity for for a while here. Cool. Um, are you still doing stuff with ButcherBox? Yeah, I've still got a discount with Butcher Box, you know, and so I put that on my website, you know, with, we, we, we put that link on, on the show notes again. That saves you, I think you get a couple free ribeyes and save some money on every order if you do that. So that, that's that's something. And I think, also I think Thrive Market has contacted me again to uh, do some stuff with them with some of their some of their meat that they're, 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 they're doing that product as well. And so they have a, uh, you know, pastured, pasture beef product that they get from uh, South America, actually. It's, it's beef from Patagonia, which they say is a very nice place to raise these animals. And so that's another another thing that I've got going on. Cool. So if you're going to load up on your carnivore meat, you know, give that to Baker a kickback for all his efforts. Okay. There you go. I'm outspoken component of that approach. So um, cool. Awesome. So that's, that's episode four. Uh, we'll get it up and then uh, move on to the next one. Thanks for tuning in and I'll talk to you next time.